welcome to the National Affairs Podcast. I'm Dan Weiser. And I'm Devorah Goldman. And we are the assistant editors of National Affairs. National Affairs is a quarterly journal of essays on domestic policy, political economy, society, culture, and political thought. It aims to help Americans think a little more clearly about our public life and rise a little more capably to the challenge of self-government. It is published jointly by National Affairs Incorporated and the American Enterprise Institute. Today, we're excited to be talking with Oren Cass, who is a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute for Policy Research, where his work focuses on strengthening the labor market and addressing issues ranging from trade and immigration to education and organized labor. He's also the author of The Once and Future Worker, a vision for the renewal of work in America. Oren has written many insightful pieces for us, but today we'll be talking with him about his excellent essay titled Putting Dynamism in Its Place from our Spring 2019 issue. In his piece, Oren writes that while economic dynamism and disruption can have many benefits, they also have costs that must be acknowledged to promote a sustainable dynamism in a labor market that benefits all workers. Oren, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Well, thanks for having me. Just to start off, you write in the intro to your essay about a standard narrative of economic dynamism. What is this narrative? It's, it's typically conceived as the more of it, the better. But what is this narrative? Well, I think the narrative is that you know, economic dynamism, or and we also talk about creative destruction and disruption. I'll just use dynamism as the catch-all. We talk about it as kind of the sine qua non of prosperity, and that the sort of the secret sauce that has led to American prosperity has been those kinds of processes. And so the kind of takeaway we are supposed to draw from that is that while those cause downsides in the short run for some people, Everyone who is kind of sufficiently wise and thoughtful will surely see that this is sort of collateral damage worth having because of the extraordinary outcomes that flow from it. What is the problem with that narrative? Well, the problem is that it's only half the story that and frankly, the less important half. And I think an interesting way to think about it is to go back to agricultural mechanization, which is kind of the quintessential once upon a time, 90 plus percent of all people were working on farms and now they're not. And isn't it great that we destroyed all those farmer jobs? And on the one hand, the answer is yes. On the other hand, if you actually step back and say, okay, let's say that all we got was all of your dynamism and disruption destruction. And so you introduced all the mechanization, and truly we could produce enough food for everybody with 2% of our workers, and that was all that happened. I would say that would actually be a fairly disastrous outcome. I mean, among other things, we wouldn't actually have any more or better food than we have now. Most people would have nothing to do, and the social outcomes, I think, would be quite poor. So when we're celebrating agricultural mechanization and what it led to, it's actually the what it led to that's more important. It's the fact that alongside this disruption, we also had innovators and investors and entrepreneurs building new and more productive ways to use the workers who were being displaced. And that really the displacement is actually only valuable to the extent that that pull into something new and better is happening. And so rather than celebrate the disruption, I think it's really important to focus on that pull into new and more productive things for people and then treat the disruption as an enabler of that. Mm-hmm. That if we're going to have to be able to get the stuff done we're already doing more quickly if this is going to work. But I would argue the secret sauce isn't the how many people can we throw out of work and how quickly can we cut costs. It's are we finding new and more productive things for people to do than what they were already doing? I think you put in your piece, Oren, that disruption isn't inherently good or bad. It depends on the context and the factors. And as you say, making those workers more productive, what are some of the factors that affect whether it will increase productivity, that disruption? 
the question is sort of then what's happening on the back end of the labor market. So if you if you think of it as this two-step process, we're going to do the things we've already been doing with fewer workers, and we're going to come up with new and better things for workers to do. What does that actually mean, come up with new and better things for workers to do? At the end of the day, it's, it is a process of invention in some cases, but also, you know, a lot of the things that people do today to provide services and value for each other don't have a whole lot of fancy invention with them at all. It's more a matter of recognizing a need, recognizing a way to create processes that can, you know, incorporate people productively, figure out how to prepare them to do those things, and then bring it all to market. It's it's at the end of the day, I think, you know, entrepreneurship is is the best way to describe it. And and I should say, just going back to the original narrative, some people when they talk about economic dynamism, that is what they're talking about. And so Whereas the disruption and destruction clearly describes one part, there's a better patina that can be put on, on the dynamism concept, but it's those activities. And where do they come from? At the end of the day, it comes from people who are talented and, and have the skills and interests to create these kinds of things, choosing to apply themselves to that, having access to capital that they're going to need to create it, having access to markets in which they can provide it and having access to workers who are going to be able to participate in it. And to illustrate the costs of dynamism, you also mentioned the example of trade. And you point out that trade has many proponents, particularly those who point to the lower prices that it can deliver for consumers. What are the costs of trade, though? What is the downside of trade? I guess my answer to almost everything is it depends. Mm -hmm. The trade can work out terrifically well. When we talk about the downsides, usually what's happening is that it's not actually trade. You know, when you talk about a trade deficit that America has running 600 plus billion dollars per year, it's not technically a deficit in that people are just giving us stuff. We have to give back something. And so whereas trade we envision, well, you make something that you give to us and we make something that we give to you, when you see a huge trade deficit, what you're actually doing is saying, well, you make something that you give to us and we will give back assets in return. And so that can be debt. So a treasury bill. If we give one to China, that's a liability for us. We owe the money. It's an asset for the holder. It is an IOU, a promise of payment in the future. And so whether it's debt, whether it's equity and promise of future profits and corporate control, whether it's real estate, if we are not trading goods and services for goods and services, we don't actually get the stuff for free. We're still sending that other stuff back. And yet we are not doing that back end of the cycle where we create new and more productive things for people to do. And so it's sort of a special case of the dynamism story where you think about the comparative advantage you might learn in econ class. In my professor used fish and sweaters. And if one person saw the fish, one person saw the sweaters, that's great. But if the other person makes all the fish and sweaters and sends them to you really cheaply, we're still only halfway there. The trade story of they make the fish and you now get to make more sweaters for them to tell the positive story, you have to get to that backside right. of it. And there's nothing automatically that says you will. And we haven't. And yes, I think you're right in your essay, Oren, that trade imbalances matter and the products that the country makes matter, as you're saying. Particularly, you mentioned advanced technology products. In 2017, the U.S. imported $464 billion, but exported just $354 billion. These are important things like biotechnology, life sciences, nuclear technology. Using that as an example, what is the importance and maybe even the downside of the U.S. being an importer of that, not an exporter? Well, it goes to the sort of more productive uses clause, which is you can look at our unemployment rate right now and say, well, 
trade can have been such a problem. Everyone who wants a job has a job, but not all jobs are created equal. If you have a situation particularly where your trading partners are very selectively and strategically choosing the industries and goods and services that they think are going to be most attractive to be strong in, that are going to provide the best opportunities for workers in their countries, and they choose that, and you just say, okay, cool, that's what you chose, have fun with it, then you don't get that. And so there's sort of the worst case where you're trading nothing for their stuff. The intermediate case that's still not very good is you're trading low-value, low-productivity stuff that does not come with good jobs for their stuff that is in all the industries that has high productivity. And you know it's an interesting view into what I think is a real problem with how the Trump administration has gone after the trade issue, where I think identifying the issue and saying we have to do something about it is exactly right, but saying you know, well, if we can trade enough soybeans in return for the electronics, then that addresses our concerns, doesn't quite get you there. You actually need, if you're interested in the long-term health of the American economy, to make sure that the American economy is having the opportunity to and is in fact succeeding in really building up strength in those sectors that are growing, that have productivity gains, that have high-value employment to begin with. So it sounds like an overarching theme in your piece is distinguishing between means and ends distinguishing between dynamism as a means and versus an end and trade as a means versus an end. Yeah, that's right. I think, and those in themselves are kind of special cases of, of the broader way we talk about free markets, which mm-hmm. is, I think, particularly in a period in the 50s and 60s where the means of free markets seemed to be delivering the ends of, of all of the kinds of both economic and social outcomes we wanted, we sort of assumed that those things were just synonymous and and so moved to a place where whether you're talking about whatever outcomes the free market delivers, whatever happens with disruption, whatever happens with trade, well, we'll just sort of stipulate that that equals good economic and social outcomes. And that's just not true. There is nothing in a well-taught economics class that is going to tell you that X equals Y. There are huge numbers of contingencies in between. And so it's important to recognize that, that those things are great means in a lot of cases. I mean, I think we should value creative destruction and want to see it succeed. And it is important to emphasize that even while it creates short-term costs, those are a necessary part of progress. I think trade would be terrific if we were trading huge amounts of stuff for huge amounts of stuff. That's much better than trading little stuff for little stuff for all involved. But you have to look more closely and ask, is it actually working? And if it's not working, why isn't it working and, and what can we do about it? And I think those are the steps that we've lost sight of. Another point you make in your piece, Warren, is that too much disruption and dynamism can actually undermine the dynamism itself and can actually lower disruption growth and more dynamism. I thought you had an interesting example where you noted that Apple couldn't manufacture the Mac Pro in Austin, Texas, because they couldn't find the screws. <laughs> it had to go overseas. So could you elaborate on that and what that means? Well, you know, in the trade context, it's what I find one of those most sort of either amusing or frustrating, depending on my mood, elements of this debate is that, you know, for decades, as we saw all of these sort of critical capabilities in things like electronics manufacturing and, and other types of advanced manufacturing moving overseas, you know, we were aggressively reassured by economists that it doesn't matter what gets made where. And now that everything is made overseas and you say, well, gosh, why can't we make an iPhone in Texas? The answer is, well, obviously all of the supply chains and expertise are entrenched <laughs> overseas, so no one would ever make an iPhone here. Mm-hmm. And like that's just as obvious as it was obvious last time around that it didn't matter where you made things. So I guess more frustrating than amusing most of the time. 
Was that a conscious decision that was made for those supply chains to move overseas or just sort of happened as we wanted to expand trade with China, for example? Well, a lot of it predates China really entering the global trading system. The quote I always highlight, which I can't find the original source. So it's one of these could just be apocryphal, but captures an important spirit regardless is Michael Boskin, who was George H.W. Bush's chair of his Council of Economic Advisors, famously said in the late 80s, potato chips, computer chips, what's the difference? <laughs> and like, I love that sentence, whether or not anyone ever said it, because such, it's such a good test of economic intuition. If you believe all of this orthodoxy that, to your point, Devorah, that this is just the means and the ends are sort of interchangeable, then, well, okay, then yeah, you actually kind of have to sign on to that. Mm -hmm. And as soon as you step back and say, wait a minute, that can't possibly be right. It's like, I don't remember, is it the red pill or the blue pill, which is the one that- I always forget that, yeah. Well, <laughs> it's, <laughs> regardless, it's like all of a sudden you say like, well, wait a minute, but if that's not true, then like, what else isn't true? Right. You start to have to think harder about a lot of things, I think. Mm -hmm. You also included a great quote from Irving Kristol, quote, where is it written that the welfare of consumers takes precedence over that of producers? Which one could argue that the customer is always right, but still. <laughs> well, and it depends how you define producer. You know, if I think a lot of times when we think of consumers and producers, we think of kind of households versus corporations. And that at the end of the day, it's the well-being of, of the households that that is the ends. And the <laughs> success of the corporations is more supposed to be the means. But if, if you think about each of us as both a consumer and a producer, that we have interests both in wanting to enjoy and consume a lot of stuff and wanting to be able to work and produce and be a, a valued contributor for our family, to our community, then it gets a little trickier. And, and all of the standard economic analysis that we do, all of the proof that trade is always great and so forth, only looks at consumer welfare. Even going back to that trade deficit example, look, if all you care about is consumer welfare, then if the Chinese, at least at a moment in time, if the, if, if the Chinese want to send us lots of cheap stuff and we don't even have to make anything in return, that is, in fact, an awesome deal. We, we could talk about the long run consequences of that, but at least in the moment, what's not to love? If you step back and say, well, wait a minute, you know, people do like bigger TVs, but they also really actually like having a job and being able to provide for their family. And a big TV and a check from the government is not the equivalent. Then again, it, it just gets more complicated. That's not to say higher prices are better than lower prices, but it is to say that just going down this path, or even, you know, even going back to the agricultural example, going down a path that says, well, no one has to work anymore. You guys just sit there and the tra you know, a few people make all the food. From a consumer welfare perspective, like, great, now we have more leisure. From an actual how life works perspective, that's actually a disaster. Yeah, Orna, I think you put in your piece the point that we shouldn't assume that after a trade disruption or some kind of disruption, workers are going to move to more productive jobs. For example, the services economy, that could be less productive and they could have less opportunity for gains over time. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think there are two points there. One is that disruption has inherent long-term costs, that when we think of disruption in the formal economic sense, we think, oh, you had to move from job A to job B. And it's like, all right, well, sure. But in practice, that's just not what happens in a lot of cases. And again, when you get into what the actual economics of human capital and so forth, if you take somebody who's midway through a career and say, well, that job is gone now, and also they have a mortgage and three kids and whatever else, that there might be a much lower paying, worse job that they could move into doesn't address their problems. And not only does it not address their problems, it 
their immediate problems are going to create more problems that when we actually think about now, what have you done to a community where that happened to a whole bunch of people? What have you done to the health of those families? What have you done to the environments where, you know, that those kids are being raised in? And now let's fast forward 30 years and see how the next generation raised in a region that we wiped all the factory jobs out of, see how they're doing. It turns out that everyone didn't just switch to another job and everything went along. It turns out instead that we, in a lot of cases, seriously eroded not just people's quality of life, but also the long-term capacity of human capital. I mean, when you're talking about the most important inputs to growth and creative destruction and innovation and all these things, at the end of the day, it's just a question of how many capable people you can produce who are ready to be productive contributors to the economy. And that's not something you get to just assume. That's not like another good in the market that if there's not enough, the price goes up and more production comes online. Mm -hmm. And so actually attending to over time the the sustainability of these core endowments of our society, of of the households and families and next generation is critically important to whether we're actually achieving the ends that we want over time. And that's just that's again not to say that creative destruction is a bad thing and and you want to be against it, is to say that it's really important to understand in the equation what the other side of that looks like. And so among other things to ask, well, wait a minute, is this creative destruction to any useful ends? Is doing this actually freeing up people who are moving to something new and better? Or is it just a bunch of cost cutting that increases profits? Because if it's just a bunch of cost cutting that increases profits, and we're not even sure that corporations are reinvesting their profits in new productive capacity, then the story we've been telling isn't actually true. Right. So what is a coherent and sustainable dynamism, as you put it in your piece? Well, I think it starts from the backside of the equation. It starts from an economy where, where the growth and prosperity is being driven by the actual creation of new and better opportunities for people, not just the creative destruction and disruption and increased profits on the front end. And how you do that is actually really hard in part just because, frankly, we've never really thought about it that much. So I like to think that if we start thinking about it, we'll, we'll come up with good answers. Mm -hmm. But how you do it is hard because it, it really comes down to asking, well, I speak on business school campuses a lot. You go and, and, and look at a generation of business school students. What are they going to do with the next 50 years of their life? And speaking in generalities, there was a time when what the top business school students would have done is gone and worked at, for the most part, large corporations that were domestically focused and expanding and doing the kinds of things that I think are most important to dynamism. And now the answer is more sort of a combination of finance, consulting, and app design. <laughs> and again, in a healthy economy, there is a great important role for finance and consulting and app design. But if everyone goes and does that, we have a real problem. And the question of how you change that Part of it, you could step back and look at economic incentives and say, like, well, are the, you know, are the returns to being an app designer so much higher than the returns to going and, and starting or being a part of a, a more tangible business? I don't think that's true. Now, I think the total quality of life that people may believe at least that they can achieve if they go and work as an app designer in San Francisco, even if in all likelihood their app will never amount to anything, that might be a very attractive value proposition. But at the outset, there's sort of this question of how much of it is, is 
an economic question versus how much of it is is much more cultural. Because, of course, if you speak to people, you know, everyone wants to kind of have a positive impact and change the world and all these things. And yet somehow the, the best way to do that is always to go and come up with a laundromat app that's going to get you your dry cleaning faster if you're also one of the people working on a different app in the same city. And so there's certainly a cultural component to this, both within how people understand the contribution that they are making and how more broadly as a society we evaluate the contributions that people are making. But I don't think there are a whole lot of public policies that are going to fix that one. On the economic side, it is worth, I think, stepping back and asking, you know, what affects the returns to these different kinds of activities? We've certainly done everything we can to make it as hard and slow and risky and costly as possible to build real businesses in the real economy while making it as cheap and fast and unregulated to do app design. And that's not to say, well, if we just make app designers miserable, that will, that will fix our problems. But it is to say that we can do an awful lot to make it easier to build businesses in the real economy based on how we regulate them. We can also create an awful lot of demand for that kind of stuff if we say we're not going to do this trade deficit thing anymore. And so the trade policy side of it is actually really important. And immigration policy, a little bit less so in this context. But we also have a problem where, in a lot of cases, it's easier to build a business that uses a lot of very low-cost, low-skilled workers. And one of the constraints that used to exist back when the system was working better was, you know, whatever you want to do, you're going to have to use the American workers who are here to do it. And we've completely removed that constraint. And in a lot of cases, the easiest way to earn a lot of money is to use as few American workers as possible. If you say, gosh, maybe we should bring that constraint back, you know, everyone's kind of sets their hair on fire. And mm-hmm. you talk about anything else, we it's we're just peons to how incredibly powerful the free market and innovation and, you know, can overcome any problem. And But if the problem is, I don't know, maybe try to find a way to make money with the workers who are here, then we're, well, that's just obviously not going to work. And restoring that kind of constraint, I think, or at least toughening it, used to be part of the equation and I think makes sense as part of the equation. And Orin, I know there are some conservatives, you kind of touched on this, that do disagree with you on that, that any type of constraint or restraint to try to make sure you focus on domestic workers will inevitably cause intervention in the economy and will undermine the free market. But I think you're suggesting that what to preserve the free market, you need some of those restraints? Or how, how would you characterize it? Well, we intervene in the free market all the time in all sorts of ways. The question is sort of which interventions are actually likely to be prosperity enhancing in the long run. And one of the examples that I like to use is, is intellectual property and patents in particular, that the whole idea of saying like, hey, we're going to literally award one person a monopoly over this thing for a period of time is, in a sense, a radical intervention to the free market. You're directly prohibiting transactions between consulting parties. You're intentionally driving up the price of this thing. You're reducing consumer welfare. And yet, going all the way back to the Constitution and the powers of Ford Congress, we were like, gosh, one of the important components of a well-functioning free market that's going to deliver prosperity is exactly that. Because we're not just here to maximize point-in-time consumer welfare. And so by the same token, I think, now that doesn't automatically therefore say all interventions are good. That's that's not the point at all. But you actually have to ask, what is it we're trying to achieve? and, And what are the means to achieve that? And in some cases, constraints are actually a really important part of encouraging the kinds of investment that we think are actually going to be best for the society. Because at the end of the day, that's kind of what we're all here for. You also write about the importance of quote-unquote tradables to local communities and labor markets. 
as well as the difference between automation and globalization. So would you talk about what tradables are? Yeah, a, a tradable is something you can trade. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's something that doesn't have to be immediately delivered and consumed at the point of sale. And so ultimately, it's the set of things around which you can build an economy outside of just a, a local economy. So restaurants are not tradable. You actually have to be there at the restaurant, essentially. Even if you, I don't know what these apps are called, that you get it delivered, you still got to be like within a drive of it not getting cold. Whereas a car, you can like make in Japan and then buy in Washington. Now, manufactured goods are by far the main category of tradables. They're not the only one. Certainly energy and natural resources are in many cases tradable. There are some services that are tradable. So tourism is technically a tradable service. Consumers from around the world, now they do have to come to Orlando to go to Disney World. But at the end of the day, what Orlando is providing to the rest of the world is Disney World. The reason that that's so important, and, and this I use this provide to the rest of the world phrase, is because every local market has to have something tradable that it makes or provides because it wants a ton of tradable stuff from the rest of the world. We can have a, a services-based economy, but we can't all serve each other coffee. If you want the rest of the world to send you your cars and medicine and electronics and, and so on and so forth, you'd better have something to send back. And if you don't, either your community just sort of is going to have to dry up or you're going to, be, you're going to become dependent on transfer payments. And, and that's what I call exporting need, which is if, if you don't have anything to sell to the rest of the world, the way to make your local economy work is to attract a lot of taxpayer benefits. And so if, you, you know, if you're in a kind of depressed community and you go around, you see kind of the typical rundown shopping center, and you might see like the sparkling occupational therapy office in the middle of it. It's like, what's that doing there? Well, it's literally the community's exporter. It is exporting to taxpayers care of the people in the community on disability. Because every time it provides care to another person on disability, it attracts a payment from the federal government, which you can then use to by, uh, you know, the, you have to trace the money through, but ultimately it attracts resources from the rest of the country. And that is increasingly what you see happening in large swaths of the country. You know, when people celebrate the, quote, eds and meds, like, well, at least healthcare is doing well everywhere. At least college is doing well everywhere. Well, that's, it's not because they're saying inherently awesome about healthcare. It's because our entitlement programs come with an open-ended check that says, if you set up shop and provide care to somebody, we will send you a check. And in fact, specifically, if you are in a depressed area with more lower income people, we will send you more checks. And that is a lot of what is keeping a lot of local economies in the country going. And it is not a healthy economic structure. Mm -hmm. which, and which is not something that's very free market oriented. It's, in fact, using the government as a payer to keep these economies afloat, essentially. Yes, that's right. And it is both not free market in, in the sense that it's, it is not going to give you any of the kinds of things that you want market forces to give you. And it's also a real problem because it, it creates the wrong incentives. It, it literally says to a community, the way to attract more resources is to create more destitution and more eligibility for more programs. The Obama administration actually promoted the food stamp program at one point to local communities saying everyone who's eligible should sign up specifically because of the great multiplier effect it has when you spend food stamps in the local retailers. That is true as a factual matter, but it's also incredibly depressing that that would be one of the things we're asking our safety net to do. 
And Orin, you mentioned, you know, there's two components if we want to have a more sustainable productive dynamism. There's disruption, but also a labor market that generates new opportunities, a healthier labor market, particularly for less productive workers. Talking about ways that we can have a healthier labor market, you mentioned labor unions, actually, how, yes, they've been on the decline, but you say there should be replacements for that. Yeah, I think the idea of organized labor is a great one. I mean, we, we have this weird fight in American politics now where the left of center for various mostly funding-related reasons, has its goal to be to put more people into traditional unions. And the right of center doesn't like traditional unions and says, well, it's just great if these things die. But there's a lot of ways to do organized labor that's not a traditional union authorized under the National Labor Relations Act back in the 1930s. And in fact, the rest of the world does it very differently. I mean, we have these fights about right to work. The rest of the world is right to work. This... I <laughs> Europe, you know, we like, oh, Europe has these strong unions. Why can't we be more like Europe? Europe doesn't have this system where you're supposed to like organize in your factory and vote and get 50% plus one and then everyone's in the union and has to pay dues. That's, that's, that's a really weird and it turns out not good system. But if we step back and talk about the, the concept of organized labor, the idea that, you know, workers should be able to band together, have more bargaining power when they're seated across from employers be able to sort of create social capital and institutions that are going to work to their mutual support, help attract new people into their fields. That's all great. Those all sound like things that, regardless of your political ideology, you'd say like, well, that sounds like something that would probably be good for the country. And it's something that we don't have anymore because these traditional unions and, and the sort of hyper-adversarial nature of them both hollowed out a bunch of the, <laughs> the industries where they did employ a lot of people and the companies where they were operating, and also alienated workers. Richard Freeman, who's a professor at Harvard, did a, a wonderful study 10 or 15 years out of date now, but I think still relevant, called What Workers Want. And when you survey workers, including workers in unions, and give them the choice, they say, would you rather have a union that is adversarial and opposed by management, but has power, or one that has a cooperative relationship with management and has no power, even workers in unions today, as well as workers not in unions, will choose the cooperative with no power option by more than two to one. And so we can do that kind of thing. And again, if, if you step back and ask like, well, why are all those business school students not going and building these kind of jobs? Why don't we have this kind of investment? Why aren't the firms in these fields ones that are expanding and growing and investing? One of the problems is both that we have this bad system of organized labor that really casts a shadow over it but also that we don't have a good system of organized labor because a good system would be an incredibly powerful means to help actually manage facilities more effectively, to provide support for workers that right now they, they have to look to the employer for, to provide training. And the classic example of this is, you know, Volkswagen in, in Tennessee has actually twice now tried to get workers there to vote for a union. Under American labor law, any of these like creative alternative kinds of things that the rest of the world has, they're actually all prohibited under American labor law unless you have a traditional union. You can't have anything instead. You must have the traditional union. And so Volkswagen actually said, please vote and create a traditional union here at our plant just so that we can then, under the auspices of that, do the kinds of things we actually believe would be valuable. And workers still voted it down twice. That's, that's sort of how far we are from, from a system that would actually push in a constructive direction. So and how would you change maybe the way that we train workers? I think the the training piece of this is is hugely important. You know, back when we were talking about well what does a system with the healthy dynamism look like? You know, there's the the better investment environment for the entrepreneurs, there's a, but but one component is 
is who's available to work and are we preparing people to be more productive and take advantage of more productive opportunities when they exist? And the answer is that right now we're not. Right now we have in America this system that is essentially college for all that says we are going to try to get as many people through a, at least two year, typically a four-year college degree. We've kind of turned our high schools into college prep academies. And, you know, yeah, we're going to lose people along the way, but we'll really celebrate those who make it. And unfortunately, the reality is we lose almost everyone along the way. I mean, fewer than one in five students from a cohort in ninth grade is actually going to go smoothly high school to college to career. Then we still have a huge share who don't even finish high school. Then we have all the folks who don't go on to college. Then you have of those who actually enroll in college, huge share, including a significant majority in community colleges who don't finish. Then even of those who finish, about 40% don't then take a job that needs a college degree. So this narrative that's sort of like, well, our economy or the economy of the future is just one where everyone needs a college degree isn't actually true. We're actually producing way too many college degrees relative to what the labor market wants. And then conversely, we have all of these huge gaps in other places where employers are looking for more workers and can't find them. And you know, in the trades and construction and manufacturing and energy, in healthcare. Now, some of that is on the employer, obviously, right? Like, well, if you can't find workers, you could pay a higher wage or do the training yourself and so forth. But I, I do think we have to step back and, and recognize the ways that it's not just the employer's problem. For one thing, if they're competing internationally, they are competing against firms in the rest of the world that do have much, much better training systems, and they don't have to take it all on themselves. You know, As in the union case with education, the rest of the world thinks we're crazy. I mean, most, virtually every other OECD developed economy has most of their high school students already on technical career tracks, not on a college track. And they, by the way, get much better outcomes for young people who then move into the workforce. So one problem you have if you're a firm is, well, okay, but if I go hire workers, again, if, if I go hire those workers who aren't American workers, it looks a lot better for me, is one problem. A second problem, and again, thinking about what kinds of businesses we build, is we, we plow you know, about $150 billion a year of subsidy into colleges. So I go build the kind of business that primarily requires knowledge workers with college degrees, I get to hire a, from a pool that just came through that. Whereas if I want to go build the kind of business that is going to require a lot of workers who don't have college degrees and find ways to use them productively, I get none of that and then get slapped on the wrist for not doing it all myself. So it seems to me that we've, we, we essentially have it backwards, that given how our economy is performing right now, it makes very little sense to be putting a lot of public resources into making it easier and less costly to get a college degree and making that set of workers even extra special plus more valuable. Mm -hmm. And it would make an awful lot of sense to instead focus those resources on non-college pathways and saying, you know, now obviously you have to choose to go on to that pathway. And if you do, then while you're still in high school, you're going to not be doing college prep all the time. You're actually going to already start in on first getting exposure to careers and what it looks like to be on the job and then developing skills, spending time on the job. You know, we could subsidize initial employment. In some cases, an apprenticeship type structure works. We can get you to age 20 with several years of on-the-job experience, an industry credential, earnings in the bank, no debt. Like, well, that'd be pretty good. And, and if that's where the public education investment was, then from the perspective of someone building a business, using that kind of workforce is going to seem a lot more attractive. And so we've talked about 
rethinking our trade policies, education pathways, also immigration too, and maybe limiting guest workers. Where does that stand right now? How has the Trump administration done on that? What are the prospects for having more pro-worker policies in the future? Well, I think the Trump administration has done a lot of important work on raising some of these questions. I think if you go back and look at you know, the landscape in 2016, on both the Republican and Democratic side, you essentially had countless politicians who, of course, said that jobs were incredibly important, and yet their platforms didn't actually focus on that. And coincidentally, all the right of center priorities like tax cuts and you know, deregulation were also jobs plans, and all the left of center priorities like universal health care and climate change were also jobs plans. But the moment any sort of other priority ran up against the interests of workers and against trying to make these kinds of changes in the economy, the other priority took precedence. And Trump really did show up and say, actually, I don't care about any of these other priorities. And every time any of these things run up against the concerns of the folks who are being left behind in this economy, that's actually what I care about. Now, we could take great issue with the way he said those things and <laughs> many other things he said, but that is a, a very concrete way in which there was actually a substantive disagreement. I, I don't remember who made this point, but in some senses, the Trump campaign was one of the most substantive <laughs> political campaigns we've had in this country for a long time. He actually had a very clear and distinct perspective that had very different policy implications and was there to argue for that. In terms of what that's actually meant in the presidency, I think, unfortunately, there's been both a lack of focus on that and not very good execution when there has been focus. I mean, the fact that the one thing that the Republicans did when they had control of Congress and the White House was a tax cut, I mean, it's almost satirical, except it's true. <laughs> and, you know, likewise, I, I think if you look at, you know, what the administration has done on trade, I think talking about how important an issue it is and that we need to change things is terrific. But the strategy, to the extent there is one, has really just been more focused on this idea of kind of, we'll just make China buy something from us. In the initial set of bilateral talks, like the key demand on the list was reduce deficit by $200 billion. It's like, that's not actually like the demand. Like that's, we would like to see the deficit go down over time. But, but what we're trying to change here is both the basics of how the Chinese and many other countries conduct themselves in the international economy. And then we are also going to have to change things in the way we do business. And it doesn't really feel like we've done that. It feels like we've just sort of been celebrating soybean sales. Mm -hmm. So I guess points for effort there maybe, but I, I don't necessarily think we're on the right track there. And then I think in a lot of these areas, there have just really been missed opportunities, especially in, in the education context, where actually, I, I think within the administration, there's been a lot of very good work. Department of Labor, especially under Secretary Acosta, was, was doing very interesting work on this, trying to expand apprenticeships to be industry-led and so forth, creating pilot programs. Within the White House, there's, I don't remember the names of all the task forces, but many task forces on the American worker and education, all these things. But it, it hasn't actually translated into even tangible reform proposals, let alone tangible reform. And, and I think that's something that the right of center up to and including the Trump administration struggles with, unfortunately, which is that you, know, you look on the left of center and wherever there's like an intuitive thematic idea of where someone wants to go, there's immediately like the boldest, most aggressive version of that policy. And then you look on the right of center and there's equal amount of thoughtfulness and concern and, and principled ideas. And then you say, like, great. So, like, what are, like, how do you push this forward? And the response is often like, well, I don't think that would get 60 votes. 
It's like, well, no, it's not going to get 60 votes tomorrow, but you put it out there, you talk about it, you prove that it's a winning issue, you actually get the public to start thinking about it, and maybe 10 years from now it gets 60 votes. But you have to start. And in an ideal world, the the re-election campaign would be exactly the place to do that kind of thing. We will see if any of it happens. What do you think is behind that hesitation? Just the inability to focus on the long game? I mean, I guess you could say there's something to the sort of conservative ethos of like, well, what can we actually get done? Mm-hmm. And the the sort of right of center equivalent of an AOC Green New Deal right. memo. It's it's hard to envision a lot of right of center thinkers really being excited about that as as a place to start. I also think though that there's less comfort in general with the idea that major structural change is needed. Remember what the is the Warren phrase big structural change? It's something like that. And and that's sort of like been inherently mocked. Like, well, obviously, how pathetic is that, that a candidate's calling for big structural change? And it's like, I don't know. I actually step back and look at the country. and I would say, like, seems like maybe we need some big structural changes and not just in the tax code to the benefit of corporations. And that if that's true, then the mode of both kind of like the, the theory of change and the role that policymakers and, and think tanks and others play in that is going to look different. And and it's I don't think it's it is a model that the right of center has historically used or is especially comfortable with. Mm-hmm. To wrap up, Oren, you you basically seem to be saying that to sustain a genuine economic dynamism, we are going to have to combine sort of disruption of the status quo and a healthy labor market that generates new opportunities. Yeah. And I think the front half is the, at least at the moment, the easy half. I mean, I think it would be a mistake to, as we mistakenly in the past, just assume both halves would happen to just assume that the front half happens, right? You, we could imagine a world someday where you had all of these you know, amazing entrepreneurs coming up with these incredible things, but you didn't have the creative destruction. Now that I say that, that might be too generous because you Mm -hmm. probably would inherently have the creative destruction. But I'm willing to stipulate you could imagine a world in which you weren't getting this front-end disruption that you needed, even with a very healthy labor market as the backdrop. You might be able to say that that's sort of how you describe what's happening in parts of Northern Europe. So you need both, but but at the moment, what's missing is is that back half. And so rather than just celebrating that we still have the front half and continuing to assert that as long as that works, the rest will come, we're going to have to figure out what to do about the back half. And it's going to require both some original thinking about how it worked in the past, what has been lost and why, and then a willingness to think more seriously about structural change and get beyond just the assumption that the free market will deliver the outcome, because that's not an outcome that it's guaranteed to deliver. So, Warren, we always end each podcast with asking our guests whether things are overrated or underrated, which is a classic podcast meme. I don't know if that's what you would call it. I tend um, to think everything is overrated, so I'm ready. <laughs> that's good. We actually, yeah, we always have a lot of underrated, so this will be good. First one, a national infrastructure bill, which has been talked about a lot, but we still haven't really seen that. Is that overrated or underrated? The talk about it is overrated. There is, <laughs> there is none and we will not be seeing one. The idea of infrastructure investment, I, I think, is lovely. All right. How about the mercantilist policies in certain Asian countries? Are they overrated or underrated as far as their effectiveness or what you think of them? I guess I think they've, yeah, I think they've been very effective in places where they've been used. Can I, is properly rated a That's choice? perfectly fine. Yeah, actually, we've had that, that we've had that several right. times. <laughs> properly rated. Okay. Sorry, I'm, I'm not a very meme-worthy guest. <laughs> Sorry. Universal basic income, which is 
been touted by Andrew Yang, of course, on the Democratic side, but as a, as a way to help workers, is that underrated or overrated? Oh, overrated. Wildly overrated. And can I make a, a point about how overrated it is? The fact that people are interested in this and like that we now have to actually debate it on the merits instead of all just laughing is <laughs> is unfortunate. I mean, it's really just going back to the AOC Green New Deal thing. Let's keep in mind that the initial version they released actually had a bullet that included like guaranteed economic security, regardless of whether one is willing to work. And the backlash against that not from the right, who just thought it was hilarious, like, that's great, by all means, but from, like, the even far left that was like, like, what on earth are you thinking putting in that in there was so strong. They, that was one thing, they had to take it out and, like, reissue the memo. I mean, that was, like, a key, sure, the Green New Deal is crazy, but we love you're doing it, but, like, putting that in there is unacceptably crazy in a dangerous and damaging way. Take it out now. And so it's just not actually a serious or relevant part of the political conversation, let alone a serious or relevant policy. All right. We can do one more. Climate change. Well, that's broad. Climate change as the greatest threat to Climate change mankind. is not the greatest threat. <laughs> okay. I don't know if that makes it underrated or overrated. <laughs> I guess overrated. I think climate change is a serious problem that we're going to have to cope with, much like many other serious problems that we will have to cope with. And it is certainly not deserving of the status or anxiety that it seems to have earned. And you wrote an excellent piece on this topic for us. Is it how to worry about climate change. Yeah, also worth reading, of course, yeah. from Warren. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you very much for being here. This is a really great conversation. And we appreciate it, particularly because I know it was a busy travel day for you. <laughs> no, it was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. If you'd like to read Oren's essay or other articles in National Affairs, please visit our website at nationalaffairs.com and consider subscribing. In addition to a printed copy of National Affairs, subscribers obtain unlimited access to our online archives. And you can listen to more episodes of our podcast by subscribing on iTunes, Stitcher, and Ricochet. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at National Affairs. Thanks for listening.